Good morning, brothers and sisters. As you can see, this is something different as we gather here and we worship and we share around the word as we celebrate communion this morning. We have this wonderful privilege to once again come into your homes and share what God has been teaching me and teaching us throughout the past few weeks, especially amidst this time of uncertainty and for a lot of people, fear. We have the wonderful hope that is given to us in Jesus Christ, which we are reminded of today, celebrating the beginning of our Easter weekend. If you recall, several weeks ago, we had a look at the person of Jesus Christ from Colossians chapter 1, and I think it very appropriate that as we move into our Easter weekend, we continue this description of Jesus Christ in Colossians chapter 1. So what I want us to do is revisit that passage and then look at not only the sheer magnificence and the sheer greatness and the sheer bigness of who Jesus is, but then also move from there to the extent that this great loving God has gone to to bring us to himself. So I'm going to open in a word of prayer and after we do that, we're going to look at the passage of Colossians 1 together again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this privilege to gather here even now online to worship you, to sing songs of praise, and to honor you and thank you for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. As we look at the word this morning, may you speak to our hearts, may you open our ears to hear, open our eyes to see, soften our hearts to respond for your glory as you make us more like yourself. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. So if you remember, uh, several weeks ago we looked at Colossians chapter 1. We started off in verse 15. And if you remember, we wanted to look at the sovereignty, the supremacy, the transcendence, the preeminence of Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn above all creation. But what I like about this passage is that as you progress through the passage from verses 16 through the 19, you see layer upon layer, truth upon truth about the greatness of Jesus Christ. And if you want to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, we see this reiterated time and time and time again as we look at the sheer majesty of the Lord. So I'm going to start reading again from verse 15 and we're going to read through to verse 19. We read, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the church. Sorry, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Now, the reason why I want to start off with this passage, specifically who Jesus is, 
is because we look in, in the likes of verse 16, we read that for in him, all things have been created, not some, not most, all things. And then it goes, whether it be in heaven or in earth, whether it be visible or invisible, whether it be thrones or dominions or powers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Many, many years ago, and I've shared this with my church a number of times, the whole idea of the creator owner, that he who made it owns it. He who made it, who owns it, therefore gets to choose what he does with it. And we see this reiterated in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, when it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same, sorry, he was with God in the beginning, verse 3. Through him all things were made. Without him was nothing made that was made. This, once again, re-emphasizes the fact that because Jesus made it, he owns it. There's that place of ownership, that place of sovereignty, that he holds that place. Irrespective of what you and I think, irrespective of what goes on around us, he still holds complete authority over and complete control in every situation, including the situation we're experiencing right now. But moving on from that, we read further on in verse 18 and verse, sorry, in verse 17, we read that he is before all things. He holds a place not only of ownership, but also a place of priority. He is before all things. Usually when somebody of honor comes in, they're the first person. When somebody has complete responsibility, when someone has complete rule, whether it be a general going into a war, whether it be a captain leading his team onto the field, whether it be a CEO who has complete responsibility and either reaps the reward or suffers the consequences of the failures and the successes of their business. One who is before is the place and position of authority where they choose to hold complete responsibility for what takes place. So we read that he is before all things. We also read then that in him all things hold together. There is an order to what goes around that he not only makes and is before but also keeps and sustains everything that takes place. And so therefore, when you look and you, you, you see how he holds all things together, the order of this universe, the consistency of the seasons, the reliability of the scientific method, the, the, the fact that mathematical laws can be discovered within the world around us. See, such things, such laws, they were not created by man. They were merely discovered by man. There was a person that wrote the following. I've got this on quote. It says, science has discovered much about the nature of matter, but many mysteries, especially those related to subatomic particles and the origin of matter, are still being unraveled. No matter what human research learns about the what of the natural world, the why is ultimately found in God's only son. That is why he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. 
not only physically, but when you read further on in this passage, you see spiritually as well. In verses 18 and 19, it speaks how he has a position as the head of the body of the church. That he is from the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That he might have in all things that place of supremacy, that place of preeminence. And, and why he holds a place of supremacy and preeminence is because the fullness of God dwells within him. I mean, think about this. The, 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 the beauty, the, the majesty, the, the magnificence, the glory, the very being of who God is, is manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. And to think anything other than that, to think anything otherwise, is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. But the reason why I wanted to start here, the reason why I wanted to focus on the greatness of who Jesus Christ is, especially in connection with Good Friday, is because I read in the Gospels how he who is the image of the invisible God, he who is um, who has within all the fullness of God dwelling within him, who is the maker of all things, who is the sustainer of all things, who is over all things, who is before all things, who is the head of the body, the church, who is the firstborn from the dead, who reigns sovereignly and supremely. I read in the Gospels that this God, this Lord Jesus Christ, that he, according to Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, says, that he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he himself, sorry, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on a cross. Look at what the Lord willingly put himself through. Now think about this. Remember the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, who created all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether powers or authorities or thrones, all things who were made by him and, and for him, uh, who was before all things and in him all things are held together. When you read about this person, we read that at this particular time, as we commemorate this day today, that he was rejected by his friends who ran in fear as the rest. That he was denied by one of his friends, not once, not twice, but three times, when asked if he knew who Jesus was. I read that before the Sanhedrin, he is lied about. I read that he is accused of blasphemy. That's in Matthew 26. I read that he is spit upon, that he is punched, that he is slapped, and then mocked by those who are physically abusing him, saying, prophesy, Messiah. Who is it that hits you? We see him shuffled off to the Romans, where the beating, where the humiliation, where the persecution, where the mockings, where the beatings are continued. I read in Luke 23 how his very own people reject him and given the choice between having him set free or a murderer set free, they choose the murderer. 
I read that when these people who a week before are yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God, the highest blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, are now screaming. When Pilate says, what do you want me to do with them? They scream, crucify him. Crucify him. Is is at the hands of the Romans in Matthew 27, verses 27 to 31, I read this. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, then they knelt down in front of him and mocked him, Hail, King of the Jews! They spit on him, they mocked, they spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put on his own clothes, then led him away to crucify him. The brutality, the, the barbarism, the sinfulness of humanity is out in force as they lead Jesus to his death. Remember who this is. This is the creator of heaven and earth. This is whom all things are created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or powers or authorities. This is he who with but a word could flatten each of them and have the heavenly host come down and deliver him. This is him who calmed the storm with but a word and said, peace be still. This is him whom, when demons saw him, he struck fear into their beings and where they asked permission to go to a herd of pigs. This is he who they have mocked, who they have beaten, who they have spit upon, who they have abused physically, whom they have just even emotionally just tormented him. And yet, as the word says, like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. That's, that's amazing. Why would he do such a thing? Why would he go through such a thing? Why would he manifest it in such a way? As he leads, as he's led, should I say, to the place where he is going to be executed, as he is being scourged and he's being whipped, and beaten as, as he's gone up now carrying the cross to the method of his death and he's walking he's so weak he needs help as Simon of Cyrene takes this burden from him for a short amount of time as they, they lead him to Golgotha the place of the skull where they will nail him to a cross and set him upright to die a hill I heard once said that he created by people that that he loves and so now he is there and I, I remember many years ago a gentleman by the name of Pastor Gibson I can't remember his first name Pastor Gibson was sharing about Roman crucifixion and saying how the only act of defiance the criminal has within his repertoire available to him is the ability to cast verbal abuse to yell out threats, to plead for one's life, to beg for mercy, to yell curses, which cannot be followed through on. And yet we read about the Lord Jesus as he's been nailed to a cross, as there are nails being put 
within his hands and nails put through his feet as he is weak and bleeding. We read that he does not yell abuse, but he prays. He prays for his abusers. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. We read that when there's a penitent thief next to him, remember me when you come into paradise and Jesus states, today you will be with me in paradise. When hanging on a cross and seeing his mum, whose heart is broken, says to her, woman, behold your son. And then says to the disciple whom he loves, son, behold your mother. And we read that she moved into a home to be cared for. We read that while he is on the cross, that there is darkness that falls on the land for three hours as he is suffering there, not just physically, but spiritually. As he, who is innocent, places his life, gives up his life for those who are guilty. I read in the scriptures that he is crucified not for his own sin before he was sinless, but for my sin. It is on that cross where Jesus Christ bears the brunt of God's wrath, of God's anger for my sin, for my offense, for my shame, for my guilt. That he takes it upon himself there and that as he remains on that cross, he has within his mind's eye you and me. Because if, if, he, if he comes down from the cross, when people are making fun of him, you saved others, let him save himself. Come down from the cross, then we'll believe. He could have, if he so chose. At any point, he could have, if he so wished. But he didn't. Why? Because he had us in mind. If he did not die on the cross for us and for our sin, then we are condemned to an eternity in hell separate from our father now you might ask where do i reach such a conclusion you may ask well what what do you have to base that upon well look the scriptures clearly teach that the wages of sin is death romans 6 23 i am told within the scriptures that there are none righteous no not one for all have sinned that's you and that's me and fall short of the glory of god we all do and because we all do, we are all deserving of death. Until God in his mercy, God in his grace intervened. God stepped down and reached out in a way to reconcile me and you to himself. So the scriptures teach, yes, Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. But I'm also told that forgiveness of sin can only be achieved through the shedding of blood. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness. And because, and because that's what takes place, then the sacrifice offered has to be something that meets God's standard and God's requirement. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, I am told that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for my sins. That word is a very old-fashioned word that means a God-satisfying sacrifice. 
A propitiation means that something meets the requirements that is asked of it. For example, if I have a loan for to a car dealer, if I have a mortgage to a bank for my house, I can't walk into the bank with a bag of oranges and say to them, here, this is my month's payment. Why? Because it is not adequate. It doesn't meet the bank's requirements. I can walk in with a really fancy box of chocolates and give it to my car dealer and say, here you go, bro. Here's, here's my payment for my car loan. They'll say no, because it doesn't meet the requirements of the dealership. So too does my sin demand payment. There is a payment that is required by me to pay for my sin and my offense against God. And my life, your life, isn't adequate. Why? Because we can't fulfill the requirements that God desires. This is what makes Jesus' Jesus's sacrifice so significant. It doesn't matter how good I am or how good you are. We will always fall far short because we are tainted by sin from the time that we're born to the time that we die. There is no way that we can meet the requirements that God needs to have sin paid for. It's the reason why we're told in the book of Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats can never take sin away. It can cover it, but it can never take sin away, which makes the proclamation of John the Baptist in John chapter 1 when he sees Jesus for the first time and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus' death for my sin and for your sin satisfied God's standard, satisfied God's requirements. And that's what makes it so amazing. And I know it was satisfactory for him, for God, because I am told in Luke chapter 23, verse 45, that the temple that separates the most holy place, the holy of holies within the temple that, that held God's presence, that the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, that that was split in two from the top to the bottom, symbolizing the fact that now there's no longer a barrier between man and God because that barrier had been torn apart through Jesus Christ. What a wonderful, wonderful opportunity that we have. Now, I, I go through all of this and explaining all of this because when I look at what Jesus has done, remember who he is. Remember that he is the image of the invisible God. Remember that he is the firstborn above all creation. Remember that all things were created through him. Remember whether it was heaven, all things on heaven and on earth, whether visible or invisible, the thrones, powers, authorities, dominions, all things were created through him and for him. Remember that he is before all things. Remember that he is the one that holds all things together. Remember that he is the head of the body of the church, that he is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, and that the fullness of God dwells in him bodily. Do you remember this? This is who Jesus Christ is. This is the one who was nailed to a cross for you and for me. This is the one who humbled himself and willingly, willingly allowed himself to be beaten, to be mocked, to be abused, to take upon himself your sin, my sin, your guilt, 
my guilt, your shame, my shame that he bore on the cross as he suffered the full extremities of God's anger, of God's wrath, of God's judgment of sin. So much so that for the first time in Jesus' existence, for the first time in his life, from eternity past to eternity future, Jesus Christ experienced true loneliness, true isolation, where he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For it was at that point his father turned his face away from his son because he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's what happened there. That's what took place. And so when I read in the scriptures, all that happened, and if you turn in, in Luke 23, verse 44 to verse 46, we read this, that it was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land and for three hours, and, uh, until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. There was a Roman soldier at his feet and looked up and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. People who beat their breasts and left, but those who knew who Jesus was stayed and wept as they saw hope die. As they saw their Savior gone. And Joseph of Arimathea, a Judean, came, who was part of the council. He wasn't actually consenting to the death of Jesus at all, but rather approached Pilate and asked, could I please take his body and put him in a tomb that had been carved out the side of a, side of a rock? And no one had laid there before. And, and he placed him in the tomb and buried him. When I look at the sheer magnificence of who Jesus is and how he humbled himself so greatly, to receive such pain, not only physically, but spiritually, as he bore my sin. That's humbling. For why would someone do such a thing? For why would someone go through all of this? And the only conclusion that I have seen within the scriptures over and over again, the only, the only explanation that has been expressed to me over and over again is this one simple explanation love he loves me he loves you it was it was love reaching out love reaching out when he took upon himself the form of a man it was love reaching out when he lived a life of complete obedience and submission to the will of God the Father. It was love reaching out when he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane with drops sweating as drops of blood. It was love reaching out when he even proposed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. It was love reaching out that allowed himself to be arrested and physically tormented it was love reaching out as he was scourged and had his back torn to shreds as he dripped blood and became so weak it was love reaching out as he bore a cross and walked up 
to Golgotha, the place of the skull. It was love reaching out when he spread out his arms and allowed nails to be driven through his hands and through his feet. It was love reaching out that when they propped him up, he sat there and took upon himself the full punishment of God for our sin. It was love reaching out when God so loved me that he sent his only begotten son, that if I believe in him, I will not perish, I will have everlasting life. That is love reaching out. This is what Easter is about. This is the reality of Good Friday. Good for us, for Jesus not so much. But we are told in Hebrews that Jesus didn't see the suffering. Rather, he saw the joy set before him. He endured the cross as it leads on to Resurrection Sunday. But I want us to remember and to be reminded that Easter is not about the chocolate. It's not about the bunnies. It's not even about having time off. Easter is the reminding of us, for us, to truly be appreciative and to give thanks for what our Lord has done and giving us the opportunity to be forgiven of our sin, to be born again through faith in him and be made right with our God. We who are so undeserving, we who are so self-centered, May we truly appreciate and know and recognize love reaching out. And this is why it's a great opportunity for us to celebrate communion. That we look at and be reminded of the extent of God's love for you and I. I mean, if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It is a very common passage, but a beautiful passage. Nonetheless, as we read in verse 23, For I have received from the Lord what I also passed to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So church, please take your bread. Let's take it together. Verse 25, in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup. For whenever you eat this bread, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. May we continually be reminded of the wonderful love that has been bestowed upon us, the love that sacrificed, a love that died, and a love that willingly, willingly had us in mind. Let's pray. 
Joshua. Father, we thank you so much as we take over these elements. Thank you of the love that reached out and had your body broken for us. A love that reached out and shed blood, shed your blood in order to make us clean. We thank you so much for the privilege and for the honor of allowing us to be witness to such an amazing sacrifice. Father, help us to not only understand, but to truly realize the lengths that you've gone to for us and help us never take it for granted. So we ask for this now as we celebrate the rest of today, that we will be ever mindful of the new life and of the new home that you have given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you very much for that, brothers and sisters. I really appreciate you taking some time out to allow us to celebrate our Good Friday together. Enjoy the rest of your day, and I pray that in some way you'll continue to connect with others who know Jesus and who don't know Jesus, and that you will bless them with the love that you have been blessed with as well. God bless, and we'll see you on Sunday.